Welcome. This is our, our fourth week in our study of the book of Romans entitled Foundations of Freedom. And we are going to say this a lot as we journey through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans was written plain and simple to encourage believers in Jesus Christ to rely solely on God's grace for their salvation. The book of Romans is the clearest, the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel in the Bible. The gospel, the good news of God's grace made available through Jesus Christ, changes absolutely everything. It is a game changer. It's more than a game changer. The gospel is the goat of game changers, greatest game changer of all time. Nothing else compares. Church, when you think of it, we are broken, sinful people living in a broken, sinful world, and yet the gospel of Jesus Christ provides real purpose and meaning to our lives. What else could compare to that? It also gives us hope and assurance that there is so, so much more that awaits us after this life is done. And I want to give you a real quick life example about what I'm talking about. Many of you know Red, Gary Youngie back here, plays in our band very often. Uh, I've had the opportunity for about 10 years to know his mom. Uh, she's a believer. She loves the Lord. And it's been at least a year ago she was diagnosed with cancer, and it was fairly far along. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that his mom, Marjorie, just simply decided to say, I'm going to entrust myself to the Lord. Uh, I'm going to forego medical treatment, and if the Lord chooses to heal me, I will receive that. But if the Lord chooses that it's my time and he calls me home, I will receive that as well. And so I had the opportunity to spend some time with Marjorie before my sabbatical, and then during my sabbatical, uh, she continued to, to digress uh, with her health. And Levi and Seth had some time to spend with Marjorie. And at one point in time when Levi was visiting Marjorie, he simply asked her how she knew she was going to heaven when she died. And very simply, she looked at Levi and said, Levi, I wish that I could tell you that I was good enough, that I had done enough good in my life to get to heaven. But you and I both know that's not true. She said, I am going to be in heaven solely because of my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. Church, can you imagine the, the peace and the, the assurance that that has brought her husband, Roger, and Red, and, and other family members? Uh, what an amazing, amazing truth that the gospel provides us to have assurance. Church, Marjorie got it. She understood what Paul wants all of us to understand out of the book of Romans. The good news of the gospel changes everything. The gospel is often described as the great exchange. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus willingly takes upon our shame and our guilt and, and pays the penalty for the sin that we deserve and in exchange, he offers us his righteousness so that we can actually be in right standing with a holy, righteous God. 
Church, just think about the truth of that. The faith, that faith in Jesus moves us from sinners to saints. Faith in Jesus takes us from spiritually sitting on death row and makes us an adopted son or daughter of the God Most High. We're free from trying to find our deepest needs met in people, places, and things that will never meet those needs. I hope, I pray that you, if you are here today and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, that daily you think about the difference that it makes in your life. Even on our worst day here on earth, we have so, so, so much to be thankful for. And as Romans will encourage us through this series, Paul encourages us all to build our identity and to build our life's priorities around the gospel. And friends, to that end, I want to encourage you to treat this series that we've just begun in Romans like a trip to your favorite buffet restaurant. Now, now you understand what I'm saying when I say that if you go to a buffet restaurant, it should be illegal to simply eat a salad with all the food that's made available to you. When you go to a buffet, you do not want to rush through your meal. You take your time and you put some thought and some planning into it so that you can have the best experience possible. At a buffet restaurant of any kind, it is an opportunity to let your taste buds wander a little bit. You don't have to order the same old, same old and play it safe. Am I right? Other people can, have, can identify. Yeah. For those of you who, like me, you know how to work a buffet, it all begins when the waiter or the waitress takes you to your table. You see, you do not want to get to your table unless you have walked by the buffet and you've checked it out to see what you're working with, right? Some of you have done this, okay. Uh, Because again, you are going to be exposed to so much delicious food and you do not want to make the rookie mistake of getting to your favorite item on the buffet and your plate is already full because the first trip through is always the best. You will make a second, and some of us will make a third or a fourth pass, but it will not taste as good. So you want to plan how you're going to approach a buffet. And church, in the same way, let me encourage you to plan to get the most out of this Roman series that you can possibly get out of it. I would encourage you to bring your own Bible. If you've got a Bible that you write in, bring it with a a pen and and, and take notes. Underline certain words, circle certain words. Feel free to write in your margins. That's perfectly fine. Uh, You may even choose to, uh, to get an online Bible commentary. And this is one Bible gateway. If you're not familiar with it, they've got a free version. And then they've got a version that you pay a little bit for. But it's just incredibly robust in terms of the study materials that are available. The truths contained in the book of Romans will absolutely change your life if if you let it. And so whether you're new in your faith in Jesus or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, whether you're exploring putting your faith in Jesus, Romans has so much for you. Please, please, please. Take advantage of it.
So would you now grab your Bible or there's Bibles in front of you or grab your device and turn to the second chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 11 verses and my Bible heading over this section says God's righteous judgment. Romans chapter 2 verse 1 begins... You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your stubborn heart and your unrepentant heart and you are storing up for yourselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth, underlying that if you've got your own Bible, and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Now, you might have picked up that I put some emphasis on the word you and your. By my count, Paul uses the words you or your 14 different times in these 11 verses. So who is the you that Paul is addressing at the start of chapter 2? Well, in in last week's lesson, the last part of chapter 1, Paul described a group of people that he called godless and wicked. People whose hearts were literally controlled by sin. Now there are many Bible scholars that believe that that group that that Levi looked at last week was really kind of the Gentile world at that time. Non-Jewish people who had fully rejected uh, faith in God. Listen again to Paul's description of those godless people found in the end of chapter 1 of Romans. In verse 29, It says, they had become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They even invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, Although they know God's righteous decree, and isn't that interesting? They know it. To the, those people, 
uh, who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they are approving of those who practice them. These again, church, are people who have willfully rejected the gospel and are doing their own thing. And sadly, you and I can look out into our community, we can look out into, uh, on television and in the world, and we see people who are literally allowing themselves to just be controlled by sin. And the Bible says those folks can and will expect and should expect God's judgment. I saw um, a window sticker here in town this week that just broke my heart. It was one of those stickers that you put in memorial to somebody else, and there's some dates perhaps when they lived and when they died. And, and the, the sticker had this person's name on it, and then it said, bring a little hell into heaven. And the saddest thing is, is that there will be no hell in heaven. For people who reject the gospel and live, again, like hell here on earth and, and allow uh, the world's mentality to, to truly control their lives, those people can expect God's judgment rather than his grace and mercy that, that he offers. So when Paul wrote his lengthy letter to the church in Rome, Paul himself had not yet even been to Rome. So Paul is not thinking of a specific church when he, or specific individuals when he uses the word you and your. Rather, and don't miss this, Paul is addressing a second kind of person, a second group of people who need to understand their desperate need for the gospel. Beginning in chapter 2, Paul boldly confronts the person who listens to him uh, describe that person at the end of chapter 1, that, that person that's wicked and evil. This is the person that stands behind Paul and says, you go, Paul. You give it to those people. They are evil and they deserve everything they're going to get. Boy, am I glad I am not like them. The you that Paul is addressing in chapter 2 are people who view themselves as being good people and they view the people at the end of chapter 1 as the bad people. These are, are people that call out in Romans chapter 2 are, are being called out are self-righteous, just like the prodigal son's older brother. They're the kind of people who maybe seem to have it all together on the outside, externally, but inside they are just as sinful. They're, they're like the many religious leaders of Paul's day and of, of the day that Jesus walked here, who were so focused on other people's sins that they totally were oblivious to their own sin. This is the group of people that Paul is now turning his focus to and calling out. You may remember that, that Jesus confronted this kind of heart in Matthew 23. I think I've got it up here. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Church, one of the truths that Paul is trying to communicate here is that it's possible to, to look very uh, religious or moral or right on the outside, but on the inside be just as broken and sinful. Uh, sometimes we can look at people who do certain things and we hold them up and we say, oh, look, look at how, how good their relationship with God is. And it may be, and hopefully it is, but, but it's easy to play the game in, in, a, in a church or even in a community. Paul does not let these so-called good people, these self-righteous people, off the hook. Look at, at verse 1 of today's text. Paul says, You therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. I think the key phrase in, in, in that verse is pass judgment. When you pass judgment on someone else, you have made yourself the judge and the jury and you have pronounced the verdict. Paul is certainly here not suggesting that followers of Jesus have no basis whatsoever of making a judgment about something that's right or wrong. The Bible clearly teaches, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, followers of Jesus ought to be able to actually make sound judgments as to what is right and what is wrong. We're told in verse 5 that the people that Paul is confronting, this, this new second group of people, in verse 5, we're told that they have stubborn and unrepentant hearts. And that means that they have not yet responded to the gospel. They are not authentic believers of Jesus Christ. And so the main truth that Paul wants to get across in, in all of these 11 verses that we're looking at this morning is this. Living a so-called good and moral life will not make anyone right with God. Living a good and a moral life will not make anyone right with God. You see, Paul understood the two lies that we as humans are, are quick to believe. Lie number one is that somehow our sin or our shortcomings are far worse than anyone else's. They're so bad, God couldn't even forgive them. That's, that's a lie, and that's one lie that sometimes people choose to believe. The second lie is this. It's believing that my sin isn't quite as bad as everyone else's, and thus I'm not quite as in need of God's grace. He didn't have to bend down quite as far to pull me out of my sin as he did my neighbor. And it's the second lie that Paul is confronting in this section of Romans. Compared to Adolf Hitler 
or Saddam Hussein or Jeffrey Dahmer, we all look like pretty good people. But Paul wants the church gathered in Rome and us to understand, and this is so important, church, that other people are not the, the measuring stick for how we are doing. We aren't to compare ourselves to other people. We're to compare ourselves to God's holy righteousness. And that is a standard that is so perfect that absolutely none of us will ever meet on our own. You may still be kind of wondering, well, Wes, how in the world does Paul still compare these people who seem to be kind of good people with the people that we looked at last week? After all, some of those people, it seems, might have even committed murder. Again, Paul understood the teachings of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 21. It says, You have heard it said, that, or, or you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, this is Jesus, that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. While the outward behavior may be a little different, Jesus says, the level of sin in the heart is just as ugly. And that's something most of us don't want to think about. Sin at its core is a heart issue. For the last uh, three months, I've had the privilege of having some extra time to do some extra reading. And uh, I picked up a, a morning devotional called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. And uh, if you're looking for a, a great morning devotional to read, uh, that would be it. Uh, you can contact me if you want more direction as to how to get one. But this past Tuesday, while I'm preparing for this message in, in the first part of chapter 2, here, here's what I read. It, it, it so fits what Paul is talking about here in Romans 2. Uh, Paul Tripp writes, <clears throat> We all tend to see ourselves as more godly than we are. Here's the problem with that tendency. When you name yourself as being righteous, when, when you attribute to yourself more maturity than you actually have, you don't see the grace that is your only hope. We don't think we devalue grace, but that's exactly what many of us do. Because we look at ourselves and we conclude that we are spiritually okay. We don't tend to have a deep esteem or appreciation for the grace that is our only hope in life and in death. You see, only people who acknowledge how deep their need is and who admit that they have no ability whatsoever to meet that need on their own get excited about the grace that meets every one of our spiritual needs. On the other hand, we don't like to think of ourselves as needy, so we tend to minimize our sin. Sadly, many of us are far from concerned about the sin, are, are far more concerned about the sin of others than our own. 
We pay far more attention to the spiritual needs of others than our own. Because we minimize our sin, seeing ourselves as righteous, we don't cry out for and run after the rescuing and transforming grace that is ours as children of God. As long as we still have hope in us, that is, hope in our ability to be righteous on our own, we won't run after the grace that is offered us in Jesus Christ. It's only when we are willing to give up on us that we will seek the rescue that God's grace offers us. Yes, it really is true that hopelessness is the doorway to hope. Seeing yourself as hopeless and helpless, if left to yourself, initiates and ignites your pursuit of God's grace. The fact is, is that we were all given daily evidence of our continuing need of grace. Simply put, we have no ability to make it on our own. We still stand in desperate need of divine help. Are you willing to admit that and run to where grace can be found? Boy, isn't that good. Friends, that's such a good question to ask. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've come to understand that you will not get to heaven by being good enough? Believe it or not, after 26 years of ministry, it is amazing how many people I have conversations with who still believe that getting to heaven is based on being a little more good than you were bad. They actually believe at the end of your life that, that God has some sort of a scale in front of him and all your good deeds are on one side and all your bad deeds are on another. And if the scale tips a little uh, in your favor, then you get in. Paul is confronting a group of people who at the final judgment they actually believe they will be standing in a different line than the people that we talked about last week in Romans chapter 1. Paul's words may seem harsh, but they're simply trying to help them understand that they will face judgment and eternal separation from God just like the other people. His words may seem harsh, but they're, they're truth-filled truth and they're actually loving. Look again at, at verses 2 and 4. Paul says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. That's the, the first basis for judgment, based on God's truth. So when you, a mere human, being passed judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul's being very direct here because he is aware that there are people who, who when they think they have it all together, they have very little felt need for God or for his grace. So in verse 2, he says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. Paul is saying essentially, look folks, this is kind of kindergarten level truth that I'm giving you. You and I know that God's judgment is based on truth. People will get what they deserve apart from Christ. 
And in verse 3, Paul reminds them that they are mere humans. And yet, as mere humans, they are making a judgment based on, on their wisdom and righteousness rather than God's perfect divine righteousness. So Paul reminds these self-righteous people who have been holding court on all these other people that they will one day stand in God's court, which is entirely based on truth. Paul says to them, you who have been judging others, will yourself be judged based on God's truth? Paul is telling them, on the outside, you may look like you have it all together. You may look, in fact, more respectable than your neighbors and your core co-workers and others in your family. But at your core, your sin and your sin problem is no different than anyone else's. And you, therefore, apart from Christ, will suffer the same judgment. Don't think for a second, Paul tells them, that you will escape God's judgment based on your truth rather than his. Paul is again simply trying to convince a person who thinks they're good enough to be right with God that they are headed for eternal disaster. Starting back in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul talks about the wrath and judgment of God as just one of God's responses to sin. That's a response that, that all of us deserve and many will get. But church, in chapter 2, verse 4, in countless other places in the Bible, we see another way that God responds to sin. And this is just so beautiful. God responds to sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, with undeserved kindness. Take another look at verse 4. Paul says, or, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance? Paul rightly points out God's, the kindness of God, and the, the word used here in verse 4 is often translated God's goodness. Your translation may actually use the word goodness. It refers to the fact that God is good and in this particular issue instance he's not talking about god as as being good in a moral sense he's talking about the riches of his kindness referring to the fact that god treats us with unbelievable kindness and goodness he moved towards us with goodness and we could talk about the thousands and thousands of ways that god gives good gifts to us his created people. But it's not lost on Paul that these people that he's writing this letter to in Rome are somehow connected to the church, which means they themselves have been offered the astonishing goodness of his salvation through Jesus Christ and yet felt that they didn't really need it. I want to step away from Romans chapter 2 and spend just a moment thinking about those of us that are here this morning or those that are listening online. Every one of us in this room, everyone that is listening online, we all share the same problem. 
It might reveal itself in different ways. It might uh, be in various different levels or, or degrees. But uh, some of us might even be better at, at hiding it than, than others. But we have all fallen short of God's perfect and just standard. We've all sinned. We've missed the mark in countless ways. And such, all of us deserve to be standing in the same line behind the folks that, that Levi addressed last week in chapter 1. In fact, the, the first time that we sinned, if God wasn't good, he would have given us what we deserved immediately. He would have judged us instantly, and thankfully he didn't because we're still here. Like a, a, a parent who disciplines their child and then goes into the other room and, and weeps over having to do that, it is God. God takes absolutely no pleasure whatsoever in punishing people. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. What is that truth? Paul literally spent his life telling people what that truth is. And it's found in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever, what a beautiful word, whoever believes is not condemned but whoever does not believe stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Point being, personal faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is what saves. Being a good person, being a religious, religious person does not. We're not going to have time to look at a, at a lot of the other verses 5 through 10, but I, I do want to point out and note, and if you, you read them again this week, that uh, they affirm what the rest of the Bible affirms as well, that those who have authentic saving faith in Jesus Christ will live their lives to please God and can look forward to spending eternity in heaven with Him. Those who live primarily simply to please their sin nature will one day face God's judgment for their sins. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul uses the word repentance. And many Bible scholars talk about repentance as just simply being a change of mind and a change of purpose. Repentance involves turning away from a life of sin and turning towards living for God. Now, I've heard it said that Christians are not sinless people, but Christians should sin less. And there's two sides of that statement that I want to look at real quickly as we close. First is this. Christians are not sinless. I hope you understand that. If you're a Christian and, and expecting that you're going to live a sinless life, you're pretty disappointed. Not saying that we can't strive for that, but I'm 54 years old, and I made the decision to give my life to Jesus Christ when I was in fourth grade. I was literally raised in the church. 
I am so grateful that I have had more advantages to know and grow in my relationship with Jesus than any 10 people ought to have. Uh, going to church and Bible school and all these things. I have been so, so blessed. And yet, I am so shocked at how quickly I can be the pettiest person in the room. <laughs> I am shocked at how quickly I can feel feelings of jealousy. And I can be selfish and I can be judgmental of others. People with authentic saving relationships with Jesus Christ continue to struggle with sin. We sin because we have a sin nature. In addition, the more that you mature in your relationship with the Lord, the more aware you are of how deep your sin actually runs. And so there'll never be a time in your following Jesus, this side of heaven, where you just say, I've arrived, I don't sin anymore. It just does not happen. Coming to Jesus does not make you a sinless person. Coming to Jesus means your sins, the penalty for your sins, are paid for. They're forgiven. Jesus paid for them. Now, at the same time, as followers of Jesus, Christians should sin less than they did, less and less. Genuine faith should always uh, produce real change in our lives over time. Saving faith changes the way that you think about sin. You begin to understand it for what it is, that it's wrong. Saving faith changes the way you emotionally feel about sin. You begin to feel sorrow and conviction. And changing faith or, or authentic faith changes the way that we respond to sin. Instead of embracing it and enjoying it, we do everything we can cooperating with the Holy Spirit to turn away from it. The book of James also talks about that faith that's not accompanied with action is dead faith. Sadly, for too many people today, um, like these so-called good people, uh, Paul addresses in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, they think that being right with God being confer is, is like being confirmed in, or have, being baptized or going to church or just being a good person. And Paul says, take a look at the evidence. Does your faith change the way that you think about sin? Does your faith change the way that you feel about sin? Does your faith move you away from sin? And church, this is a bold statement, but Paul is making it here. If there's no difference in the way you relate to sin than when you felt you came to Jesus, then you do not have a saving faith in Jesus. This morning, I want to close by just challenging us to think of a, about a couple of questions this week based on this text. The first one is this. What is our attitude towards other people that we see struggling with sin? Do we judge them for their sin while we rationalize and excuse our own? What is our, our general attitude towards people that we see in our world, maybe in our family, maybe in our spouse, that we see struggling with sin? Is our attitude more focused on judging them and excusing our own sin? That's one thing I'd, I'd like us to think about. And the second one is this. What are some of the blind spots 
in our own lives. Areas where we, we think we've got it together and we're operating in a godly way, but, but we just miss it. Just like the, the corner as you're making a, a change into the lane. We can all have spiritual blind spots that we're unaware of. Begin to ask God prayerfully to reveal what those blind spots are. Last week, Paul made it clear that people who are characterized by letting their, their lives be characterized by sin can expect to, to experience God's judgment. This morning, Paul's brought the case against morally good people and says, even though outwardly you may look a little different, you too, apart from Jesus, will face God's judgment. And then next week, Levi will be here and, and Paul will be addressing a third group of people in this section of Romans, religious people who are relying on their religiosity rather than the grace of Jesus to get them to heaven. Have the band come on up and close us in a final uh, song, and, and I'll have a word of prayer for us. Father God, we're, um, we're thankful for your word, even when uh, it's really, really challenging uh, and confronting. Um, Lord, the gospel is so... Uh, important. It is it's the, the most important concept, uh, truth in all of history and always will be. And so because it's so important, Paul seems really, really focused on helping people understand that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Uh, the grace of Jesus is available to anyone in any place in life. Guilt and shame and condemnation are not what God has for us. And yet, Paul also wants the people to understand, apart from Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you are, are wicked and depraved in the world's eyes, whether you, you think you're doing better than everybody else and, and on the outside you have it all together, or whether you're religious in your church, in church every, every time the doors are open. Apart from you, Jesus we're all going to stand and face God's judgment. And so I, I pray for those that are in this room. I pray for those that might be listening uh, online at a later time. And, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will draw any of us that, uh, that are convinced we're, we're where we need to be and yet we still don't have an authentic faith in you, Lord. I pray that you would draw many people into authentic faith and uh, that you'd be honored and glorified in it as well. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.